Hebrews 11:33 says, who by faith, and you guys know that there's all kinds of faith stories chronicled in Hebrews 11. It's called the great hall of faith. And here it says, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions. We're going to see that in a few chapters in Daniel 6. Quenched the power of fire. That's where we're at tonight. If you have the uh, NIV, Hebrews 11.34 said, they quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong. You may want to mark that. From weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Now, if you turn over to Daniel chapter 3, Hebrews 11, the writer of Hebrews is commenting on some of the events of the book of Daniel, using them as illustrations of faith in circumstances that people that we've read about in Scripture have faced. And you all are on a faith journey tonight. The Bible says we walk, and walk is a synonym for live in the Bible. We live by faith not by sight. So each of us are going to have our giants to face. The walls, that think of the walls of Jericho. Think of uh, Goliath. Think of rivers and seas and armies and obstacles and even fiery furnaces. Faith always has obstacles to overcome. You might want to note that if you haven't noted it before. Faith will always have an obstacle, whether it's a giant, a river, a difficult boss, a, a tough situation, uh, something that you're going through personally, whatever it is. Faith is always going to have an obstacle to overcome. And in this chapter, it's fire. I would say to you that faith, here's the definition, is facing our challenges and fears with confidence in God. Faith is facing our challenges and fears with confidence in God. I am sure that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their Hebrew names Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, had some fear. I'm sure that they were probably feeling some, you know, stress and anxiety on the inside, but they were able to face Nebuchadnezzar and the fiery furnace because they had confidence in God. And when you say you have faith, faith is another word for trust. In Greek, the word faith is pistis. We spell it P-I-S-T-I-S. And it literally means to entrust yourself to God. We say that faith is only as good as the object in which it is placed. So you can say you have faith, but is your faith in the right object? Faith in faith is not going to do it. Faith in yourself can take you only so far. Faith in God will get you to the finish line and get you into eternity. And you have to place faith in the right one. Because if you say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe I can jump off the Empire State Building. All I need is a little pixie dust. I believe, I believe. Well, there's a greater law called gravity, right? So we have to place faith in the all-powerful God. Chapter 3 is all about faith in the book of Daniel. This is a historical um, account with a prophetic um, undercurrent, uh, you could say. Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 3, 1, the king, he's the king of Babylon, 
we have run into him already in the book, made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, its width six cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Now, last time we were together, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream of that multi-metallic image. And when Daniel was able to interpret the dream, he told the king, you are the head of, remember, you're the head of gold. And so Nebuchadnezzar was told that you're the king of kings and God's given you, you know, um, all these uh, blessings, if you will, and he's given you these abilities. You are the head of gold. And then as he moved down the statue in Nebuchadnezzar's dream, you, we had different uh, metals that represented different kingdoms. Well, notice that Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 3, verse 1, and it's, there's a little time that has passed. It has to be at least enough time from chapter 2, the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream, to chapter 3 for him to erect this colossal image of gold. How much time would it take to erect such an image? I don't know for sure. There are some people who believe there's only weeks that have passed. Some people believe months. Some people believe years have passed. Whatever it may be, Nebuchadnezzar has taken the head of gold and decided he's going to make a whole image of gold. I'm the head of gold. Well, okay. But you know what? I think I'd like to make the whole body gold. Because if the head of gold is me and the rest of the body's gold, then the whole thing's about me. And maybe no other kingdoms will take over Babylon and I can rule for the rest of history. Yippee! That's basically what Nebuchadnezzar, I think, was trying to do. You can interpret my dream. And he even gave credit to the God of Daniel, the God of Israel. But you know what? I think I'll make the whole thing of gold. Who needs a head of gold when you can make the whole statue, the whole idol of gold? Maybe an attempt on Nebuchadnezzar's part to debunk Daniel's full interpretation or to say, even though that may be what was said or interpreted, I think I'll try to change history. And there's a lot of people who have tried to do this, fight against God, fight against the revelation of Scripture. The devil himself, of course, does that seemingly every single day. And so in the dream, remember, a final kingdom would come, a stone made without hands, and would smash the entire statue. And Nebuchadnezzar was shook by that. And uh, the king may have had a, must have had a change of heart because he must have thought twice about the dream, the interpretation, and he makes this colossal statue. It's interesting to connect this thought uh, with the dimension of the image. And this is it. It was six cubits wide and 66, or I'm sorry, 60 cubits high. A couple of sixes there. The number six is prominent in the Bible as the number of man. And of course, in the book of Revelation, the mark of the beast is what? Six, six, six. You could say God's number is seven because he is perfect. If you have the NIV, it says King Nebuchadnezzar, verse 1, made an image of gold 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. So we get a, a measurement that we can understand. Set it up in the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And so he's got a 90 feet high statue, 9 feet wide. One writer says large statues like this were typically made of wood, were plated with gold, Either, either way, this would have taken a tremendous amount of gold. The image was most likely standing on a huge pedestal. 
The plain of Dura was probably six miles southeast of Babylon. It, it is either a place marked by a series of mounds or from a common noun meaning walled enclosure. In either case, uh, this thing was, was large and could be seen from a great distance away. So he's made this colossal image. Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, verse 2, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Notice that the writer continues to emphasize that Nebuchadnezzar's the one behind this. He pushed for the image, he set up the image, and uh, now he's got it. There are seven classifications of government officials here which were to pledge their full allegiance to the newly established empire under Nebuchadnezzar as they stood before the image. The image probably represents the god Nabu, N-A-B-U, whose name formed the first element of Nebuchadnezzar's name in Akkadian Nabu Kaduri Usur, meaning Nabu, protect my son, or Nabu, protect my boundary. So Nebuchadnezzar's name connects to this false god. In essence, the image represents Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, his God, and he's saying, protect my future. I'll make the whole thing gold, so hopefully my kingdom can endure forever, and no rock made without hands will smash the statue, and no kingdoms like the Medo-Persian or Grecian Empire or Rome will ever take over. And so, the satraps, verse 3, the governors, the counselors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. They stood before the image or the idol or figure that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the day of dedication had arrived. I'm sure it was long anticipated. I'm sure posters went out everywhere. I'm sure there were announcements on the 11 o'clock news. The, the dedication of Nebuchadnezzar's statue is tomorrow. Everybody was talking about it. Everyone was there. All the big wigs, all the movers and the shakers, government, politics, you name it. All the spiritual advisors. But interestingly enough, Daniel was not there. Where was Daniel? I don't know. Some people think he was away on state's business because he had been elevated after chapter 2. We're just not sure, but he is not there. And so these first three verses, Bible students, just note that Nebuchadnezzar is directly behind the construction of the image, putting it on display. It's all about him. Some believe that the image was a representation of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar himself so that when he asked people to bow to it, he's in essence saying, you bow to me. Many of you know that there's a day coming, according to the book of Revelation, when a man called the beast or the Antichrist will demand the worship of the world. He will say, I elevate myself above every so-called God. And he will call upon the world to bow down and worship him and to take his mark. And the mark we mentioned in Revelation 13 is 666. And if you don't bow or if you refuse to take the mark, he kills you. That's what the book of Revelation teaches. And so this is the prophetic scene. It's historical. It's a historic account that actually happened, but it's also prophetic in the sense that it prefigures something 
to come. And so here we see this great image. Here we see the people assembled. And so verse 4 says, Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language. Now Babylon is a world empire at this point. Remember the multi-metallic image in Daniel 2 represents world-dominant empires. So when you move from Babylon to the Medo-Persian Empire uh, and, and on down to Greece and Rome, you're talking about empires that ruled the world. If you think about empires that dominated the world, you can really go back to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then you, you get to kind of the idea of the A.D. dates, and then you kind of circle back up with Rome and, and on throughout history. So what you're looking at in this uh, scene is a world-dominant empire that is dominated by war and taken captives and slaves from many peoples, many tribes, many tongues, many nations are in captivity in Babylon, not just Israel. Even though Israel's 70-year Babylonian captivity was prophesied, they are not the only nation in captivity under Babylon. So you have to think about it as a dominant world empire with multitudes of slaves from many different tribes, tongues, and nations that are there. They're in some sort of bondage, serving Babylon, serving the king. There they are. Command is given from peoples, two peoples, from nations, men of every language. There it goes. Revelation 13, 7 and 8 says, it was given to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Authority over every tribe and people and tongue or language and nation was given to him. That's the Antichrist. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, Revelation 13, 7 and 8. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. It would appear that Nebuchadnezzar has decided to set up a world religion wherein you must bow to his God, whether it represents his God or his image or a combination therein, because you are a slave to him and he is the king, and so you're going to bow. And so can you imagine the sight? A huge colossal statue, 90 feet high, all of gold, a sea of humanity, strewn across a plain, a band about to start a song, and the command is given, every one of you who serve the king of Babylon, hear this, when the band begins to play, you better hit the dirt. That's the command, and it goes out. In fact, it says, at the moment, verse 5, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music. You are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has set up. Hear ye, hear ye. This is what you are to do the moment you hear the first sound from the band. You are to hit the deck in front of this golden idol. And to read a little bit more of the fine print in the contract, whoever does not fall down, verse 6, and worship 
shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. <sighs> Maybe right there they hit a, some of those fans. What are those little fans? Thing. <sighs> oh. Now, if you were a person who had been thinking about your religious persuasions recently. Maybe you were an Israelite who knew, you know, I think Exodus 20 says something about, uh, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no gods before me. Commandment, not suggestion. Commandment number two, you shall not make an idol to bow down to it. This is what you would learn in Sabbath school. Every, every Friday evening and into Saturday, these are the commands. They're the top ten. They're the first two of the top ten. But the fire looks pretty fiery. It's one thing to talk in a Bible study about the bravery of these three young men. It's one thing to say, yeah, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What's their names again? Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Yeah. Taking a stand. Until the fire of the flames are leaping in your pupils. Ever been there before? Ever had a theoretical conversation in a Bible study about, yeah, I'll take a stand for my faith. And then been confronted in a moment where all you felt like you could do is say, Mary had a little lamb, little lamb, little. <laughs> I mean, you know, when, when this stuff hits real life, it's a little different than a Bible study, right? When your job's on the line. When, when somebody, you know, when you're facing whatever your fire may be tonight. And the command is clear. You are to bow when the band plays. And suddenly the awesome silence is broken with the sound of many instruments. And people, oh, you, you bet they couldn't wait to hit the deck because, look, the devil said it well, skin for skin. All that a man has will he give in exchange for his life. Right? The, the idea of human preservation. Look, we all want to live. And think of this sea of humanity. The moment the band begins to play, they all hit the deck in waves, almost like dominoes over the plain of Dura. But in the middle of the sea of humanity, three figures, three. How many people do you think were out there? Thousands? I'd say at least thousands. Hundreds of thousands? Possibly. Three probably teenagers won't bow. And they must have stuck out like the proverbial sore thumb, right? Can you imagine? Everybody goes down and there you are. <laughs> you might want to, why? I want to be five foot five right now <laughs> so I, I could look like I'm kneeling, but I'm standing and everybody goes down. In the middle of the sea humanity, three figures stood up, stood out, stood alone, and stood firmly. They would not bend their knee. Nations, men of every language, fell down 
And they worshiped the image, verse 7, of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. As soon as they heard the sound of the band, the people hit the deck. They were men, they were peoples, nations, men of every language. They fell down. They worshiped the golden image that the king had set up. They were obedient. And for this reason, at the time, certain Chaldeans, another way of saying Babylonians came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They accused the Jews. Verse 8, the word accuse means to slander with malicious accusation, to devour, literally to accuse somebody piece by piece. We just studied this in, on Sunday in James 4. And they responded and they said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You yourself, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, all kinds of music, is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. You can see Nebuchadnezzar, yeah, 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 I know what I said. Therefore, there are, actually, there are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration, we have a little bit of problem with that, but we'll talk about that later. You almost wonder if the 90-foot colossal statue was to set up the demise of the Jewish young men by jealous people in the administration who thought, oh, they've risen above us, but there's a way to deal with them because we know they won't bow to idols. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, what do you think about this idea, boss? A 90-foot colossal statue in the midst of the plain of Dura. Everybody gathers, everybody bows, and there you are. We'll fan you, we'll feed you some grapes, king. It'll be a great banner day. What do you think? But behind that, it might have been, you know, if we build this thing, those three guys that just rose above us on the company ladder, we know they won't bow. And guess what? It's, guess what? It's an easy way to get rid of them. Just like in Daniel 6 when the decree goes out that you can't pray to anybody except the king for 30 days. They knew Daniel wouldn't stop praying. These men that you appointed over the administration uh, of the prophets of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Rack, Shack, and Benny, if you've watched Veggie Tales before. How many of you saw the VeggieTales version of this? Oh, it's just must viewing. But anyway, these men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. They don't honor you, king. Now, in VeggieTales version of Rag, was it Rag, Shack, and Benny? The boss decides that he's going to, he has a chocolate bunny factory. This is tremendous biblical insight right here. And everybody's working in the factory, and he starts a song about the bunny. you got to sing the bunny song. The bunny, the bunny. Ooh, I love the bunny. That's kind of how it goes. Anyway, <laughs> Pastor Michael, <laughs> what is this VeggieTales stuff? My kids grew up in that generation. Anyway, never mind. So in the story, they refuse to sing the bunny song, and that's what gets them in trouble. It's a, it's a depiction of this story. And so they say, they don't serve you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image. They've disregarded you, verse 12, inflammatory language. They don't serve your gods or worship the golden image, which you have set up. Well, they got all that right. They would not bow down. It's a striking picture. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing in defiance to the king's command. 
a huge crowd, sea of humanity has bowed down. What do you think the conversation was like with a couple people right next to them who were bowing and looking up at them? Hey, what are you doing? If ever there was a time of peer pressure, it's now. Everybody else has bowed. Maybe somebody whispers next to you, what are you doing? Another one says, just bow down, they'll kill you. Didn't you see the furnace of fire there? Another one adds, look, everyone else is doing it. Didn't you watch the commercial, whatever happens in Babylon? Stays in Babylon? This is the time when one would be tempted to rationalize temporary disobedience. Amen? When we are facing the fires uh, in our lives, in our time, when we're put to the test, will we obey or rationalize? And we're going to have the voices that say, just bow down. It's not a big deal. Maybe something like this. Well, certainly God would understand. He can't want us to die here in Babylon. How about this? I'm going to bow now because I know God will forgive me. How about this? The Babylonians don't understand our Bible and our ways, and we don't want to offend them. It may hinder us from reaching them, so we'll bow. How about this one? I'll bow on the outside, but I'll be standing on the inside. Oh, I'm sure you could add to the list of excuses that we all make when we face our fires and we justify our sin, right? Oh, well, God will understand I'm sure it's not that big of a deal if I break a command or two or three right now. How many times have I stood in the fire of compromise and rationalized? How many commands have we broken for convenience or because of compromise for less, much less than this? I'm sure that none of us have faced a literal furnace of fire, but we've all faced times when it felt like the heat was on. In this situation, this discussion at the company, should I chime in right now? Should I tell them what I believe about this ethically, morally? Should I tell them that I believe in Jesus Christ even though they're going to mock me? Should I stand up for unborn babies right now? Or should I make a stand for uh, what I believe is the proper ethic even though they will marginalize me in this setting, in this context? We all have to ask ourselves, and I think this is what this sermon is about. Which God is God? Who is your God? Whom will you serve? That's what this is about. So I want to put something else before you that I think you've probably thought about, but here's this. If they would have compromised temporarily, would God have forgiven them? I'm sure he would have but they would have missed something. What would they have missed? The miracle of God's intervening presence. See, when we compromise what we miss, what we often miss, let me fix this for a second, is we miss the beauty and majesty of God showing up to empower us in the fire. And look, I'm standing up here to tell you that I've, I've experienced both. I've experienced times when I've compromised and times when, by God's grace, I was able to stand and experience the beauty of his glory in the midst of the fiery trials. Peter says, Beloved, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing 
as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exaltation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. That's 1 Peter 4, 12 through 14. Don't be surprised when you face your own fiery ordeal. Because the Spirit of God will in a special way rest upon you when you take your stand in the fire. But not everybody will be pleased. And Nebuchadnezzar, verse 13, was enraged. In rage and anger, he gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Get them before me now. But the fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom and knowledge. And the question that you're going to have to wrestle with, and I'm going to have to wrestle with tonight, is who do I fear? Do I fear man? Jesus said, don't fear him who can kill the body. And after that, he has no power over you. Fear him who can ruin both soul and body in hell. That's Matthew 10, 28. That's what Jesus said. That's not what I'm saying. That's what Jesus said. Nebuchadnezzar had a pride problem. And he responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Is the story that I'm hearing about you actually true? Surely we just have a little misunderstanding here. <laughs> Maybe it's a failure for us to communicate. Maybe you didn't get the email. Maybe the text was corrupted. I don't know. But let's try this again. Now, if you're ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, verse 15, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. Let's give this a second try. I just elevated you guys in my cabinet. I like you guys. You guys are nice fellows. You came over from Israel. You know, your buddy's good at dream interpretation. Hey, I understand. You can see the angry smile. I, I understand. <laughs> Ruining my day, my dedication, and my statue. But we'll try again. We'll play the music. We'll hit the play button one more time. But you're going to bow. And if you don't worship the statue, you will immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Whoa. Uh-oh. I'm not sure if... Uh, this comes to your recollection, but other Mesopotamian kings have said similar things like, Who among all the gods of these lands has delivered their land from my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Uh, Isaiah 36, 20, taunting the God of Israel. Let me just say to you, it's a very bad career move to taunt the God of heaven. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows to, that he will also reap. Galatians 6, 7. Don't mock God. It's a dangerous game to play. The devil often whispers to us, maybe the second time around, 
Are you ready now to bow? Is it really worth it to go through all of this? And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter, NIV. We do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. We don't even have to answer you. Why do you think they said that? Because Nebuchadnezzar already knew who these guys were, what God they served. He already had had Daniel interpret the dream. He already knew, he had to know by now, that they refused to eat from his delicacies in chapter 1. They refused his meat and his wine. He knew that they were committed to the God of Israel. So they said to him, you know who we are, in essence. Isn't it obvious that we serve the God of Israel? Should people at our office or in our family really have to ask us? Okay, once the music plays again, you will bow now, right? No. You already know I'm a Christian, right? You already know what I stand for. You can play that song 77 more times and I'm not going to bow. And I think that's what they're saying. It's an it's a important insight to know that there were three of them. Because I think it's easier to stand when others are standing with you. Amen. But I heard Walter Martin one time say, if you have to stand alone, God will help you make that stand. Walter Martin one time said, if you have the love of people and you're in the ministry and you're a preacher, thank God for that. But he said in his incredible style, but you don't need it. Because if God asks you to stand alone, Here's my question, will you stand? And I'll tell you, I so appreciate the body of Christ because I appreciate having brothers and sisters standing with me. Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 12, write it down. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion, but woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm but how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower one who is alone, two can resist him. Listen, a cord of three strands is not what? Easily broken or quickly torn apart. A cord of what? Three strands. How many men are standing here? There are three standing together. If it be so, verse 17, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. You can see some Jewish people who had bowed down. Amen. Amen. Preach it, brother. Preach it. I heard a pastor who, uh, they've... Uh, They've partnered with the Union Rescue Mission on Skid Row uh, in some of the hardest ministry probably on the planet. And he said, yeah, our, our church stepped up and, you know, everybody was excited about this partnership to minister to people on Skid Row until they realized what it was really all about. And then they responded, here I am, Lord, send him. And that's what a lot of Christians do. Here I am, Lord, until they realize maybe a little bit dirty. Here I am, Lord, send her. Until they realize there may be a little bit of a cost. This, brothers and sisters, is faith. 
Don't you believe those weird definitions that you hear from some circles of professing Christianity that say that faith is just believing enough and if you just have enough faith, anything you ask is going to happen. That's not faith. That's a new age concept. Speaking your own reality. You just speak out into the universe somewhere and you're going to get what you spoke. No, that makes you God. And so I, I like this. I like the confidence. The confidence is we believe God can. We believe he will. Look at verse 18. Put this into your faith definition. But even if he doesn't, let it be known to you, we are not bowing down. I believe he can. I believe he will. But even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. You mean sometimes faith could include when I don't get my will, I'm talking about Michael's will, I'm still supposed to believe? When God doesn't answer my prayer the way that I've prayed for maybe a long time, I'm still supposed to believe? You mean in my faith definition, it has to include even if he doesn't, I believe he can, I believe he will, but even if he doesn't, yes. You see, this is what faith is about. Faith is trusting God even when I don't understand. Faith is trusting God even when I don't get the answer that I'm looking for. What's your definition of faith? Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and says, Father, if it's possible... Let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You see, so many people get disappointed because they're sold a bill of goods about what they think a faith definition is. But that's not faith. Faith is trusting God even when it doesn't make sense. Dr. James Dobson some years ago wrote a book when God doesn't make sense. And he told the story about some friends, very committed believers who were in ministry, very uh, God-fearing men who all died in a plane crash. And he said they were at the memorial service for the three men. There were the grieving wives. There were children and businesses and friends and family and churches left behind. And it didn't make sense. And Dobson said, I was wrestling with God. And he said, at the moment they dismissed from the memorial service out of the church, they all looked up and a plane was passing, I think, over the chapel at that exact time. And I think there was a rainbow involved or there was some sort of sign as if heaven was saying, I know, I understand, I'm working. I think some of you uh, have heard this song by Jeremy Camp. I don't know that he wrote all the lyrics, but he wrote, Scattered words and empty thoughts seem to pour from my heart. I've never felt so torn before. Seems I don't know where to start. But it's now that I feel your grace falls like rain. From every fingertip washing away my pain. I still believe in your faithfulness. I still believe in your truth. I still believe in your holy word. Even when I don't see, I still believe. That's faith. Faith is, I'm going to walk when I don't see. 
Now, there are many beautiful, wonderful, glorious things that God has allowed me to see. Amen? There have been many incredible answers to prayer. People that God has brought into the kingdom. Blessings that he, he's rained upon us. And I think that these three young men are a model of what it means to believe. Well, Nebuchadnezzar, verse 19, was filled with wrath. His facial expression was altered. <laughs> that means he was a little bit contorted. What? What do you mean you're not going to sing the chocolate bunny song? <laughs> right? I get my way. I always get my way. No, we're not going to bow. Okay, well, if that's the case, then here's my command. Heat up that furnace seven times hotter than it was. I'll show those Jewish boys who's boss around here. One commentator said, just in case the Jewish God was able to save only from normally heated furnaces. <laughs> seven times hotter now! Hang on, boss. And that's probably how they did it. And so they made it hotter and hotter. Hotter! And hurry! Okay, boss, okay. Oh, he was intense. Some people believe the seven times hotter is figurative, but I don't think so. I think Nebuchadnezzar is very literal. And he commanded certain valiant warriors, that is, some of his strongest soldiers who were in the army, to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps. Normally they would undress victims like this, but they didn't, they didn't even want to wait. Their caps, their other clothes, and they were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent, he couldn't wait. The furnace had been made extremely hot. That's why I don't think it's metaphorical. The flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They carried them up. It would appear that the way this worked is the, the furnace was like a cone shape. And there was an entrance on the top. And then you went down into the furnace. And so they climbed up, maybe some sort of ladder. The soldiers had them. They had them tied up in bonds. And when they got to the top, the furnace was so hot, it killed some of the most valiant soldiers that Nebuchadnezzar's ha Nebuchadnezzar had. And I, here's the way I see it. And they released their grip because they died in the moment. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fell into the fiery furnace. And the other soldiers died. And here's an application. When we let our anger boil over and get so intense and so hot, other people end up getting hurt that we didn't even intend to hurt. Some of his top soldiers, some of his strongest men died because Nebuchadnezzar couldn't wait. They need to go in the fire and they need to go now. And it killed some of his best soldiers. Sometimes our anger does that very thing. But these three men, 23, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace, blazing fire, still tied up. Can you imagine that moment? Okay. <laughs> ah, God, help me now, please. This is the time when God has to work <laughs> or you're toast. 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astounded. He stood up in haste, and he responded and said to the high officials, Was it not three men we cast into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, Certainly, O king, certainly, yes, it was three of them. He answered and said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. It's bar Elah in Hebrew, it could be translated the son of God or the son of the gods. Some people say it could be plural because he was a pagan. How did he see the three of them to begin with in a fire, but let alone a fourth one who, as VeggieTales puts it, was real shiny? (laughs) That means he had to be more shiny than the fire. This is a powerful being. And here's something that we learn about our God. He doesn't always save us from the fire, but he'll enter the fire with you. And you might say tonight, are you sure, Pastor Michael? Are you sure that when I face my fiery furnace, when I face the fires of hell or whatever comes my way, how can I know for sure that he'll be with me in the fire? Look no further than the cross. He entered the fire of this earth and sin and death and the devil and everything he had to face for us. Do you think he can meet you in the other fires of your life? I'd say so. And there he is, in the midst of the fire. Nebuchadnezzar's comment is intriguing. He sees a fourth individual walking around. And he identifies him as the son of God or the son of the gods. Notice that the only thing that the fire did in this case was burn away their bonds. And when you stand strong in the midst of temptation. And you stand against idolatry and compromise. The only thing the fire will do, by God's grace, is burn away the things that bind you. Do you believe that? How many of you have experienced a time, maybe recently, where you faced a temptation maybe that you've fallen to before, and you stood your ground, and you became more free as a result? Do you know there's a spiritual principle? Here's what it is. The more times you face your fires and you refuse to compromise, the more free you'll become. Your chains will fall away. That's the spiritual principle. And it's true. There's no safer place than in the fire with Jesus. The Lord did not remove the fire, but preserved them through the fire. You can check out Revelation 3.10 that says something like that. Things may not always go smoothly. They may not always be pain-free. But the Lord said, I will never leave you. And I will never forsake you. This is 2 Timothy 4.17. It says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me in order that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear and I was delivered out of the lion's mouth. 2 Timothy 4.17 and 18. The Lord will deliver me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, 
Then Nebuchadnezzar, and it came near the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, sorry guys, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Now you might think that they, their clothes were smoking and you know, they were a bit charred and you know, had to brush some ash off of themselves. But that was not the case. The satraps, prefects, the governors, 27, the kings, high officials, gathered around. They saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was their hair of their head singed. The Hebrew says not even a hair was out of place. Their hairdos were all perfectly spiked and everything. I'm just kidding. That's not what it means. <laughs> not a hair of their head was singed, nor were their trousers damaged. Oh, this is cool. Even the new... Uh, Tennis shoes were all right. Nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Can you imagine being one of the leaders and going, you look over at the strongest soldiers in the kingdom, they're dead and they didn't, they just got near the furnace. And these guys, they're intact. There's not, no smoke smell. There's no singeing the hair. There's nothing. Would that make you go, hmm, I wonder if I'm serving the right God. Psalm 91 comes to mind. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, he, he does this several times in the book, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel. Kind of messed up my day. But anyway, he has sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. You know, after unbelievers watch you take a stand, Sometimes they begin to celebrate the fact that you're legit and some of them might even start to believe in the God you serve. Do you know that some of them sometimes put you to a test just to see if you're legit? And if you come out smelling like a rose, as it were, they might just say, hmm, could you tell me a little bit about this God you serve? One of our evangelism team was at the mall and they have a table there and there was a gal, she was working at a place that sells pretzels and he was not supposed to approach her so he was telling us in the prayer meeting earlier that he called to her and she asked her boss, hey, this guy wants to tell me about God. Do you mind if I walk over there? And the boss said, oh, go ahead. And he shared the gospel with her and she got saved in the mall while working at a pretzel place. And his opening line was, man shall not live on pretzels alone. I'm just kidding. That was my joke. That's not how he opened the gospel presentation. But it's an idea. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, I know. Therefore, says Nebuchadnezzar, I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, hadn't Nebuchadnezzar, in essence, done that? Shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap. So let it be written. So let it be done. <laughs> Inasmuch as there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Okay, uh, let's make a new decree. Write this down. If anybody says anything mean about their God... Uh, we'll destroy them. Boy, what a turn of events on the plain of Dura as three young men said, 
ain't gonna bow. Nope, ain't gonna bow. You never know what God might do as a result. And then the king, and I would say the ultimate king, because he's sovereign in the book of Daniel. His sovereignty is on display that he's all-powerful. Caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Verse 30 does say King Nebuchadnezzar obviously prospered them, but behind that was the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords who entered the fire with these three young men. You're not alone. If you step out in faith, if you take your stand, he is faithful. He may not always do things the way you want in your time, but he will honor a man or a woman who takes a stand for him. Some of my notes. I know you're feeling the pressure. I know there's persecution for believing in Jesus at times. I know some of you are tempted to give up. The writer of Hebrews could say to the people he addressed in Hebrews 11, I know some of you are tempted to go back to the sacrificial system because it's hard to be a Christian. I know some of your friends and family are ostracizing you because of what you've believed. Some of them may have even threatened you. Loss of place in work, society, family. But I'll just say to you, don't give up. And I'll say to you that in the book of Daniel, you learn that when you resolve in your heart not to compromise in small ways, you can make bigger stands when those happen. Obey God in small things, and you'll find you'll be stronger in bigger things. And you'll find favor from God. And you may even be surprised that when you take your stand, God might save somebody by your witness. Father, thank you so much for the lesson of faith in the fire. Thank you that you are so faithful. Thank you for the precious people who have come out tonight to study your word. I pray that their faith has been encouraged in whatever fire they face. Some of you may be here tonight if you keep your head and heart bowed and you're not sure that you know Jesus as your Savior. Maybe you came into this place tonight and you've, you're exhausted and you didn't even know where to turn and you came here tonight maybe as a last resort. And he's here to meet you. You might say, what, what do I need to do? You need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Believe that he died on that cross for you. That he entered the fire of judgment for you. Took your sin, took your judgment, took your shame at that cross. That he rose from the dead to defeat death, our mortal enemy. Something like this. Lord Jesus, save me. I believe that you came into this world to die on that cross for me. Pray it if it's you. I believe you rose from the dead and I put my trust in you and I repent of my idolatry. I repent of my worldly ways, of my sins. Please forgive me. Make me a new creation in Christ. Change me from the inside out. Help me to walk by faith and not by sight. If you're a backslidden Christian and maybe... You've fallen to the fire of compromise. Look, we've all been there. You can get up, he'll dust you off, he'll get you back where you need to be. Just maybe do some business of repentance with him. And for those of you who are facing your own fires tonight, I pray you've been encouraged. I pray that the Holy Spirit will just encourage your heart to stand strong and stand fast as you lean upon the Lord.
in Jesus' holy name. Amen.